Uh, we're going to Toronto right now to check in with Dr. Colin Furness, the epidemiologist at the University of Toronto, who has become a friend of this program over the ma- past uh, couple of years. Dr. Furness, good morning. Good morning. It's good to have you with us, sir. Talk to us. I'm looking at the National Post, uh, Dr. Furness, and today they're saying Ontario reporting more than 10,000 daily cases of COVID-19 for the first time. Uh, this is Omicron at play, Yes. It is. And of course, that is the number of positive test results. That is going to have not a strong relationship with the number of actual cases. We know people who can't get tests. We know people who feel too sick to leave their houses. Right. Uh, We could have north of 15, 20,000 cases today. We don't know. Right. Uh, Dr. Furness, the other column that needs to be examined with the same degree of scrutiny is hospitalizations. Because as I understand it, sir, and this is why you're on today to help help people like me understand this a little better. As I understand it, uh, the Omicron variant is considerably more infectious or contagious than previous variants. But in terms of severity, it is 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 less so. In other words, you can catch it more easily easily, but it's not likely to kill you. Is that a reasonable analysis at this early point with Omicron? That's not a bad take. I I think instead of talking about whether it kills you or not, let's talk about how much it harms you. Okay. Uh, COVID can attack your body in two different ways. The the easier way, the upper respiratory tract way, and the really scary way that leads to long COVID and brain damage and so on and so forth. Omicron appears to be impaired in that second way. Not unable, but impaired, which means if we're right, and it's still early days, uh, we would see less long COVID, less need for ventilation. So So some of those really bad outcomes, we will see less often, but as an upper respiratory tract infection, it can kill you in the same way that flu can. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, it's still something really to be worried about, but hopefully, and, and it is a hopeful note, that some of those worse outcomes are going to be avoided. Dr. Furness, is it likely then, sir, that are you expecting to see uh, a, an, an imbalance in terms of the ratio between an increase in the number of recorded cases versus an increase in the number of hospitalizations? If the hospitalization goes up at a lower percentage rate than the case rate, is that a good thing in terms of the likelihood, in terms of damage this variant can do? We should expect the hospitalization rate to be a little bit lower. That's what we've seen elsewhere in Europe. Right. That's, that's the expectation. However, if everyone gets infected at once, and that seems to be happening here, um, even with a lower uh, hospitalization rate, you're still going to see hospitals swamped. So it's, it's, in other words, the lower rate is more than compensated for by the sheer numbers. And so we're still, I'm still very concerned about what's about to happen. Yeah, Dr. Furness, in advance of your appearance with us this morning, I meant to mention you were coming on to talk about Omicron. I've had some emails from listeners about this, one of whom, uh, Florence, uh, has family in South Africa in Cape Town. One family member had a doctor cancel a flight and inform her she wasn't going anywhere. Another family member uh, received no particular specific medical advisories at all. So uh, again, uh, this is, I suppose, uh, in terms of public information, it, you can't generalize uh, it, except you have to. So that's a tough one, isn't it? Oh, it certainly is. And things are changing really fast. Public health guidance doesn't work very well when things are changing really fast. That, that the message you get one day may be out of date compared to best practice for the next day. Yeah. Even symptoms of, of what COVID is doing 
doing is changing fast. So it's confusing, yeah. Dr. Furness, another big issue here in British Columbia, more so than Ontario, I think, is this whole matter of access to tests. Uh, Our public health officer, Dr. Henry, has for quite some time expressed a, a certain reservation about those tests. She doesn't think they're as accurate and reliable as they should be, and yet the population uh, is demanding a test in Ontario. They were distributing them for free at at some liquor stores, for crying out loud, versus here in British Columbia, they're simply very difficult to come across. How important uh, is an an ingredient in the mix is the access to testing? It's such a confused issue. There's no question. The best way to understand rapid tests is they're not a diagnostic tool. They are a screening tool, and they answer one very narrow question, and this is where I think Dr. Henry has it completely wrong. The question a rapid test answers is, am I contagious right now? Right. That means that right before gathering, this is very useful. However, if you're using it and measuring its effectiveness against the question, am I infected at all, they don't perform very well. So you have to really understand why you're using these tests. And Dr. Henry's not the only person in public health who doesn't like rapid tests. Sure, yeah. A lot of it has to do with control, uh, control over diagnosis. Uh, that, that's something physicians really want. Control over counting cases. That's something that public health really wants. Well, when you try and control that much, you end up really letting the population down. And I think that's probably the frustration. People should have access to this really important screening tool. And let's not pretend that it's a diagnostic. Right, right. And yet, and control is, I suppose, from a, a consumer perspective, Dr. Furness, people are looking for some ability to control something in their lives. We've had basically such a limited degree of control for such a long period of time. For some, this represents uh, an ability to at least uh, uh, find out what's going on. But as you point out, for example, if we're planning to go step out on the town on Friday night on New Year's Eve and we go get a test today just to make sure we're okay for that big deal on New Year's Eve, despite the fact that here in BC everything's been cancelled, my point is that if you took the test on Monday, that means nothing about how safe you might be on Friday night. That's exactly right, that a rapid test tells you in that moment in time, am I contagious right now? That's so vital for people to understand. It's useful, but it's useful in that very, very narrow way. And let me just point out home pregnancy tests in the 1970s, Mm -hmm. the same opposition from public health, the same opposition from some physicians about people won't use it properly, they won't understand, it won't make sense, they'll use it as a substitute for medical care. Well, no one thinks that home pregnancy tests are a bad idea now. Same, Same discourse, same protest, same thing. Uh, it's obviously a useful tool. Interesting stuff. So as far as the public, and now in Ontario, uh, I have family in Ontario, and uh, they're getting uh, they're getting along with the booster program pretty successfully here in British Columbia. We're getting close to a million. Over 800,000 people out of a population of 5 million have had their booster. So that's a good number. But of course, authorities are saying we need that number to be much better. What's the status in Ontario this morning? I've just heard that there are unfilled appointments, so we've, we've been lowering the age, cat, age criteria, and people should be getting a shot as soon as they can, because I think come January 4th, the age criteria get lowered a lot. Apparently, there's, there's vacancies, which means we're not, we're not going full out, and we're not quite sure why. It could be that the holidays don't leave people enough time, or maybe enough people are already that sick that, that they're not going. We're not sure. We're doing okay, but uh, it's, it's when I see empty appointments, I worry. 
Ah, I see. And, and we're, we're dealing with some of that this morning here in Vancouver, too. And we just had a discussion about it with our newscaster. And one of the certainly one of the variables at play was the holidays and people having other commitments or in some cases, people just being denied the opportunity to do what the original holiday plan was. They've just sort of cocooned for a few days and I'll get back to you later. Uh, either way, it's disappointing to see these opportunities missed, isn't it? Oh, it is, because this third shot matters a lot. It really does in terms of protection against COVID, uh, against Omicron. It's the difference between being very well protected and not. So it's, it's, it's vital, at least, to preserve our health care system, at least. Uh, Dr. Furness, uh, we're dealing with this Omicron variant. We're still learning about it. We're, we're, we're learning very quickly that the that third booster shot is critical in the process. Uh, but this is not the first variant. And it's uh, my long-winded question to you this morning is, are you expecting more? I am. More variants or yeah, more shots? more variants. Yeah, well, this is what viruses do. I mean, this is this is this is how that works. Omicron could, and I'm I'm going to emphasize, could prove a little bit of a useful friend in this regard because it's so contagious. Mm-hmm. It may be the most contagious thing we've ever encountered. You know, we're not sure. Uh, it's so contagious that it's going to beat out other variants, and that may mean that we only have this one, and then and then children of it to deal with. So as we develop a better vaccine, uh, as we develop better treatments, uh, as we understand the symptoms better, we may be dealing with this one for a long time as opposed to flipping to something entirely new. That's my hope, and that's, that's one scenario, that Omicron crowds out the other ones and, and, and that simplifies it for us. But that's, there's no guarantee. Exactly. Now, uh, this October, pandemic notwithstanding, like millions of other Canadians, Dr. Furness, I went out to my local pharmacy and got a flu shot. I do that every October. Is it likely, going forward, that Canadians are going to have to adapt their annual regime to include a COVID booster on an annual basis. It's possible. I've been saying I doubt it because because COVID mutates so much more slowly than flu, and the vaccine for COVID is so much better. Um, ultimately, it really does get down to uh, how much more COVID continues to evolve. I'm sorry to say that Israel is now reporting, they're, they're sort of out front of everybody, they're now reporting they think there's waning immunity after the third shot, which is really discouraging. Mm-hmm. Trying to solve this once and for all, but uh, like you, I get my flu shot every year. It's an it's an excellent thing to do, and maybe we'll be able to mix them together. So you go and you get your one shot, uh, and it and it takes care of both. That 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 could be in our future, right? But in the meantime, the the, the really critical point is to get everybody at least to the point where there's a a high degree of uh, herd immunity, for lack of a better term, Doctor Furness, uh, with that booster shot uh, through the majority of the population. Absolutely, and if and if people feel that their their own health is not at risk here, just think in aggregate. If enough people don't get that third booster shot, we lose our healthcare system. That's the thing. It, it it it's very very fragile, and that's why we need to push third shots. That's what's important. And I suppose, though, just as a final thought to you, Doctor Furness, and you're uh, you're there, you're in the front lines, and the other part of the healthcare system that, and we're not talking just about physical plants anymore. We're talking about the people in the healthcare system. Now, almost two full years into a pandemic, uh, the healthcare system is starting to lose employees uh, due to just 100% burnout. That's another variable that the, the people of Canada need to concern themselves with. And it's a 
really scary one because it takes a long time to train people. A critical care nurse, I think that's where we might have our greatest shortages. That takes years to train someone to do that. So it's not that we can just sort of post some, some wanted ads and take care of that in a week. That's, it's extremely concerning. There's, there's, there's no doubt in my mind. That's, that's, one of the, that's one of the things I lose sleep over. Indeed. Dr. Colin Furness, thank you so much for being with us this morning, sir. We do appreciate it. Uh, great information and uh, much needed information. A little confusion in the population these days. We do appreciate your, your calm advice. My pleasure. Thank you. As we head out of our winter break in a week or more, children will be, he- will be heading back to school. But, well, let's talk about that. What's the plan for back to school for elementary school? Post-secondary, we're starting to hear from some of the institutions, UBC and SFU, talking about in-person exams or not, that sort of thing. Let's talk about uh, younger students across BC as we welcome the uh, Surrey Teachers Association Acting President, Jatinder Burr, to our program. Mr. Burr, good morning. Uh, good morning there. Uh, Jatinder, talk to us a little bit about uh, the plan in Surrey for returning to school in person. Is there a plan, or are we still kind of winging it? <laughs> I think you're absolutely right. At this point, we are winging it. Um, <laughs> okay. We know that the provincial tables are meeting. We know that the Ministry uh, of Education is meeting with our steering committee, and uh, you know they've got advocacy that's been happening. My understanding is that there's information that will be coming out later today, uh, but I don't know what that will be as of yet. Now, I'm looking at the British Columbia government, uh, the Ministry of Education, the COVID-19 Safe Schools uh, website, and of course, all of the plans and all of the protocols and all of the masking and all the rest of it are very, very, uh, very quite detailed in terms of their presentation. But Jatinder, there's nothing on the website from the government at all at this point that indicates anything about returning to school in person. Are you expecting some kind of Ministry of Education announcement this week? You know, um, I, I'm certainly hoping for that. Uh, we know that, I mean, the numbers of Omicron have expanded, uh, you know, um, exponentially. Um, in Surrey, like, I, I can tell you about Surrey. Okay. Like, in Surrey, we were the hot spot uh, in, in March. Sure were. And, uh, you know, I, how can we not be going in uh, this round? I don't know what the latest numbers are, but it is absolutely concerning. Um, I hope that the ministry and the steering committee have come together and come up with some solid plans for uh, return to school, but we're running out of time. <laughs> And what are parents telling you now? Uh, you're in the middle of all of this, so the parents and the, their concerns on the one side, and of course the ministry on the other side, with uh, charged with the responsibility of the whole system. But what are Surrey parents telling you about their preferences so far? Well, so far the folks, uh, parents that have communicated to us, uh, they're very anxious about sending their kids. Uh, they're also... You know, I think we're, they're looking at different jurisdictions to see what they are doing. Sure. And uh, so, you know, like, I think a delay in school start would be actually a smart thing to do. It would give school teams an opportunity to come to school and then talk about, you know, whatever new safety protocols are put in place. Uh, we know in Surrey, as we said, that, you know, it, it was a hot zone. Uh, our teachers were prioritized for, for immunization right. checks at that time. It would be really wonderful to have uh, another system in place to provide some boosters for our teachers so that we are ready to go. Um, you know, it's, I, I think, you know, 
what we saw uh, in COVID two years ago, notifications, parents really concerned about, you know, uh, the notifications and not receiving them or the contract tracing. And right. so they're going to, you know, Twitter to BC Schools COVID uh, to get the latest update on information. And so, you know, having a plan in place is actually really great for everyone involved. Uh, we know that COVID is affecting, um, especially the new variant is affecting our kids, mm-hmm. young kids who haven't had uh, immunizations. And uh, if you don't have, we have masks uh, mandated, but if they're not enforced, you know, you know, like, so there's all these things um, that require a plan, a real genuine plan going in. And like I said, I'm hopeful, but haven't seen it so far. And, we're at what is it Wednesday or Thursday today? Like, yeah, and we we three teachers are to be expected. Um, we we return on Monday, so not a whole lot of time left. That's right. Uh, interesting. We're, we're speaking with uh, Surrey Teachers Association Acting President Jatinder Burr, and you talked, interestingly, you just made a point, and I'd like to follow up on it. You talked about the masking protocols being in place. However, you also said, Jatinder, and I think quite rightly, there's a difference between protocols being uh, uh, enforced and being observed. So what sort of, what degree of enforcement do you, do you expect district-wide these days with regards to masking in class? Well, I think, um, especially with the new variants, we know that, you know, it's a layer. It's a layer of protection. Um, but when you have kids come to school who are, let's say, not wearing their masks, mm-hmm. uh, and there is not... Um, is the teacher expected to enforce that? And sometimes, you know, how much enforcement can a teacher uh, be able to do on their own, right? They need to be supported by the system. Mm -hmm. Uh, The responsibility is also the administrator's responsibility in the enforcement. It's also the, you know, parent's responsibility in ensuring that their kids, you know, are are doing the right thing. But uh, enforcement is difficult in schools, in crowded classrooms, Uh, If one child doesn't want to wear one, you know, the rest of the kids in that class are also in danger of being exposed, especially to this highly infectious Omicron variant. Indeed. So let's talk a little bit, if we can, just a couple of moments left. But I'm, I'm grateful for your time on, on a break, particularly. But, at, you know, we talked about parents. We talked about enforcement. I wanted to talk very briefly, if you don't mind, about vaccination, because now, of course, we have uh, vaccines uh, available to elementary school children ages five and up. What can you tell yeah. us about vaccination Surrey School District wide today? I don't think there is a general plan. I think that's the responsibility of folks, uh, parents, uh, to to get that vaccination for their kids. I would encourage that, absolutely. Um, Because if we're, again, looking around the world at different jurisdictions, uh, it's another layer of protection for our kids. Right. But as far as the school system being the point of vaccination, there's not a problem with that, is there? I don't think there is, but we don't have, uh, as far if you're asking if we have any hubs set up for, yeah. uh, like, immunizations within schools, not that I'm aware of, but it would be a great idea, especially for, um, you know, folks in Surrey that have to travel, um, the, the sites that you have to go for uh, to get immunized are kind of spread out. Surrey is very big. You bet. And so access is, you know, important. So if, if there's either more centers open, um if there was more, uh, you know, support put into getting those uh, vaccines out 
quicker. I mean, right now, if you, you know, I've heard from many members seeking the booster. Where do we get the booster? How do we get the booster? Sure. Um, and so, you know, parents, I think, from the ones that I've spoken to, are also in favor of, especially Surrey teachers, getting a, a, a booster into their arms. Um, we also, in Surrey, uh, as you know, uh, it is the largest school district, and there are other things going on, including, you know, failures to fill. We don't have enough TTLCs. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if, you know, if functionally... Uh, teachers start getting sick. So what happens? You know, like, how do you sustain uh, the classrooms when currently we're short teachers all the time? Indeed. Good point. Uh, I must leave it there, Jatinder. I thank you for your time uh, during your Christmas break. It's very, very sporting of you to get up early to do this with us. But it's very important that you did, uh, as a lot of parents are very concerned about what's going to happen a week from today. Thanks for doing this with us. We appreciate it. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, As uh, we go through this final week of 2021, uh, Simi and the crew will here on CKNW, and Jill will be doing it as as well as Michael Smith and all the rest of them. We're going to be taking a look at the top stories of the year. And with only just a few days left in the year, 2021 is already the deadliest year in BC's nearly six-year-long opioid crisis. uh, We've just learned this information recently, and here to talk about this, this, certainly one of the top stories of the year, again, regrettably, is harm reduction advocate, advisor, and addiction educator, Guy Felicella. Guy, welcome back. Good morning. Hey, thanks for having me, Sterling. It's good to have you with us. Let's, let's take a look at the, uh, at the, the crisis and, and the overdose crisis, Guy, as it relates to the pandemic. Because as you start doing some analysis on the way we've responded to the pandemic versus the way we have over several years responded to the opioid crisis, there's a huge gap, isn't there? Uh, it's not even comparable, really, if you look at the responses that have gone into you know, the pandemic and then the overdose crisis has just been left off to the side a little bit. Uh, and unfortunately, you know, I think a lot of the pandemic reg- regulations also um, killed a lot of substance users as well in our province. The restrictions, the limited capacities, not being uh, able to go into, you know, housing structures to visit friends. Uh, it just created a a disaster of uh, of epic proportions, and, and sadly, many people lost their lives because of it. Guy, the biggest problem, of course, is the unending supply, isn't it? Not only is there uh, seemingly an unending line of consumers, there is virtually no limit to the supply, and the supply now is heavily tainted with fentanyl, and therein lies the problem, correct? Yeah, I, I mean, I think the... You know, the the drug supplies, we just don't know. Uh, And, and, you know, when we do know, it's too late. Um, And you can't regulate the unregulated market. Uh, You have to create one yourselves, which would mean, you know, a safer supply of drugs to compete against that market. Because, you know, to be quite honest, we'd have to be pretty naive to think that organized crime wouldn't continue to put out the drugs that they're putting out. Of course. Because we changed and, and put something out. And we cannot you know, sit around and and think that they're going to change either. This is the way it is, and it'll continue to get worse. We're the ones that have to take, um, you know, the government has to really take the risk uh, away from the substance user and take some of that part 
accountability itself uh, to provide safer substances for people. Sure. One of the remedies, Guy, that is being proposed by the city of Vancouver, uh, among others around the world, is the notion of having uh, a sort of personal quantities of uh, supplies of what are currently uh, illegal narcotics uh, to be made legal so that uh, there isn't the, the stain of criminality associated with addiction, which is already enough of a problem. Do you see any future for that in terms of having that request by the city of Vancouver going anywhere? Well, I mean, I hope that the federal government would respond with, you know, decriminalization and removing, um, you know, criminal penalties from uh, for someone carrying possession of substances. Yeah. Uh, but still, even with that, that doesn't change the fact that the toxic drug supply is the way it is. Sure. So you, you we need to do both. We need to have uh, you, you know, an avenue for safer supply um, that people can access. And one of the drugs that uh, I think this government needs to look at to other countries such as Switzerland and Denmark, which is heroin. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's been, you know, there is there is so much scientific evidence on, on how heroin actually can change somebody's lives, uh, and we just don't follow that. So uh, is there a possibility that that therapy or that approach might see a little bit of light in the days ahead? I mean, it's possible, um, you, you know, to, to the amount that needs to be. I'm not so sure. Um, I would hope so. I think, you know, you'd have to look at uh, having the federal government uh, amend some of the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act. Uh, and ask a pharmaceutical company that's in Canada to actually make the supply mm-hmm. to distribute. Um, so if, if, you know, that would be, um, I, I think, a, a very huge step in moving forward. And so, you know, the, the biggest thing, too, is you hear that there's safer supply, but the accessibility of getting those uh, safer substances is very limited. Uh, and you have to have a substance use disorder as well. So it makes it extremely challenging. And the majority of people who do die of a drug overdose in this province die in private residence. So, you know, those aren't um, people who are um, homeless either. They're in every community. This is just everywhere across our province. And so um, we need to have access to those safer drugs. We're speaking with Guy Felicello this morning. Guy is a harm reduction advocate, an advisor, an addiction educator, and this comes from real-life personal experience. You've been there, Guy, yourself. Uh, let's talk about uh, the, other, the other side of this conversation. We've talked about drugs and supply and bad guys and all the rest of it. Let's talk about addicts and people who are in the crosshairs of drug dealers and pushers and so on. How do we get to them to reduce the overall numbers? Well, I mean, you know, you, you you need people who struggle with addiction. I mean, listen, for people who just use drugs, I, I mean, that's great. There's people that can do that. But for people who struggle with an addiction, that's that's just painful. Right. Um, and, and you need, you know, accessible treatment avenues that people can access as well. Uh, you know, trying to get a backlog into detox. And then after detox, there's another way to go into a treatment facility if you choose. And then after that, too, as well. You know, uh, you need second stage housing. Um, you, you know, it's just we continue to make it really challenging for people in our society to actually get better. Sure, if you have uh, boatloads of money and you can pay for treatment, you can have all those. Things. Right. Sure. If you don't, if you don't have any money, there's a huge wait list for you, and that's dehumanizing, and it doesn't provide anybody with hope. 
And so we really need to change the whole structure. We have two crises. We have an illicit drug toxicity crisis, and then we have a treatment industry access uh, crisis where people aren't able to get the supports that they needed. And final question to you, Guy, this morning. Is it likely that both of those crises that you've just identified are essentially going to remain on hold until we manage to deal with COVID more successfully? Well, I would hope not, but we can't do that. I, I mean, just the, the, you know, we've just lost so many people over the last six years. And I, I mean, you know, um, you, you know, we really have to, this has gone from a defeat to a debacle. Right. Um, we, we really need to do something differently and, and honestly follow the experts and the science. I want people to follow the science. You can't say you're going to follow the science on COVID-19 and not follow the science on the overdose crisis. Good point. It, yeah, you have to, if you're following science, then just do that. But don't say you do when you don't. You know, you can't pick and choose which science works for uh, what's deemed socially acceptable in our society, our society. Science is science. You need to support it. And if you believe in the evidence, then it's exactly with the overdose crisis. We need to follow that scientific evidence to save people's lives. And with that becomes safer supply of heroin to people's to access. Excellent point, Guy. Thank you for getting up early this morning to make it. It's uh, terribly important stuff, of course, because we're still dealing with this in, in huge, disturbing numbers. Thanks so much for this. Thanks for having me. Have a great day. There's Guy Felicella, who is a harm reduction advocate and a former addict himself, an addiction counselor now. Uh, Todd Very is joining us from Caslow this morning. Mr. Very is president of the Kootenai Outdoor Producer Co-op. He's here to talk about the push by the government of B.C. for black market cannabis growers to go legal. And in the middle of all of this push by the government are craft growers trying to be legal from the get-go who are, well, losing their place in line, some of them think. Think. Todd Very, good morning from uh, from Caslow, or to you in Caslow today. Good morning, Sterling. Good to have you with us. Now, first of all, I understand it's blinking cold where you are, and you are without power this morning. Todd, fill us in. Um, yeah, I have no idea how cold it is. It's everything's freezing up. Uh, my power went out yesterday morning. Um, my cows are are they're fed this morning, so they're okay. But uh, it's it's going to be a cool day. I'll bet it is. So uh, now you're, uh, as president of the Kootenai Outdoor Producer Co-op, Todd, you have a position on this move by the British Columbia government. But just for the benefit of those people listening this morning who may not be as up to speed with it as you are, what's going on? The B.C. government wants to get people who are growers, who are perhaps growing illegally and selling illegally, to go the legal route, which seems to make sense on the surface of things, and yet it's not going very smoothly. Why, Todd? Well, this isn't a new thing. The government started pushing towards black market to go legal almost five years ago sure. before licensing. And at that time, it was it was a good idea. It was a good way to put money and effort to try and get uh, the black market to roll into the legal market and have a vibrant um, market here in B.C. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, we're now four or five years later, and the black market growers that have any inclination of going into the into the legal market ha- have come into the legal market and anybody left isn't isn't interested they do, either don't have the usually it's not the the money it's a very expensive thing to set up even for a, a micro cultivator so sure 
And it doesn't help either that you have a split jurisdiction either, does it, Todd? Because here, right across Canada, the province, in our case, the government of B.C. and Victoria, is in charge of managing retail sales. We have the B.C. cannabis stores and so on and so on. But Health Canada is responsible for the licenses that go to people like you who grow and produce. That's a split jurisdiction, isn't it? Absolutely. Um, when we first started... Um we didn't actually it was around the provincial election back in 2016 or 17 we didn't even um, go to talk to anyone in the province for the first couple of years right. because we were licensing was federal and they just had to worry about retail um, unfortunately they decided not to stay in their lane and and somehow fight with the federal government over trying to get micro growers i don't know into the market which they were already allowed to come into so um, it's, it's, it was very confusing, and they never really realized that all the where did they think the applications for the legal grow operations in BC came from? We we aren't people that that just decided to grow cannabis. All all the licenses that have been granted in BC, all those people had their roots in the black market and have come over and spent huge amounts of money and time and effort. And it, and it's a lot of it is for naught because we just don't have the support for the province on the sale side, which is really really where we need it. And yet, at this on the surface of it all, Todd, if you listen to the province, they say all we're trying to do here is is streamline production so that everybody's on the same page and going in the same direction. We're trying to get rid of the black market. Your point and other producers who are who have played it legal right from the get go, uh, you've been pushed aside by some well, shall we say, pros who are moving from the black market into the legal production lane? No, that's not really the issue. The issue is um, it's that the black market still has the foothold. If the province was serious in dealing with the black market, they'd hit the distribution in the retail. They don't have to go after the the little growers that are sitting and doing. They're still selling because there's still somebody buying. Sure. And it, it's out in the open. It's on the streets. It's on the internet. And if if you shut off the illegal black market in retail, they'll have they'll close down, and the the legal market will take over. Yeah, and it's it's confounding to a lot of people, even here in Metro Vancouver, where of course we have government stores and private stores, and then gray market stores that pop up and go away from time to time. Uh, The craft brewing industry has come a long way in recent years in British Columbia. You can now go to a craft brewery, Todd, and perhaps not get a meal, but you can certainly have a snack. You can enjoy a a taste, a sample in their tasting room of what they produce. Is that where craft growers like yourself want the province to head so that you can have a tasting room or uh, some kind of sample set up at your distribution point? Point, or is it just about selling into the the retail market? You're, that is um, farm gate sales, is, as as the expression has gone for okay. the last couple of years. That's really where the illicit market, who said they were coming in, who's been trying to push for, um, is in my opinion, let the growers grow and let the sellers sell. If 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 we if we had a farm that wanted a retail operation, that's all well and good, but it's a completely separate business. They, it, it, it's licensed differently. It's, it's all that. So all, that would be not that that would be a bad thing to offer, but the better thing to offer would be to encourage 
cannabis tourism and consumption. Mm-hmm. That's that's where the province. Could, that's what is in their purview and what they they can push. Also, from the um, from the grower side, from the cultivator side, there's two really things that they could help us with. One would be similar to what they have in um, the BC wine industry with their VQA designation. Right. Yes. With, uh, Wine grown in BC soil gets special uh, considerations at the retail. Uh, I've, five years ago, I approached the province and the Minister of Agriculture about a CQA designation mm-hmm. so that uh, BC soil grown cannabis could have somewhere a special spot in retail. And to take that even further, the BC website. It, it should be promoting all the BC cultivators. It should have specials. It should be doing all sorts of things. They should be coming after us to try and get our products on the shelves. But none of that is happening. Indeed. Uh, now, you are, are an outdoor grower and have a very special license because of that approach. How long did it take you to become a fully licensed legal status grower, Todd? It was a little bit of a nightmare. Um, we came out guns blazing right at legalization. Uh, we had 15 farms ready to go and a, a facility. Um, the facility didn't get granted to uh, license till two months ago. So we haven't been able, we grew some stuff last year, but we weren't able to sell it. So three years it, it took us just to get the license, just to grow it. It almost killed us. We, well, we'll see if we make it through this the year well, we've got some product at least to try and sell right um, but it, it it's uh it's it's a it's a tricky way to get it out there and the fact that uh, the lead is is not coming from one direction makes it even more complicated we wish you considerable success with this todd and we hope the power gets restored to your place really soon it's not the kind of day you want to be without heat for very long that's right thank you Sterling. oh it's a pleasure and take good care thanks for joining us this morning todd